Today's scripture is taken from John chapter 11, and I'll be reading verses 17 to 37. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Today we're going to finish our series in the Gospel of John. It's called Signs of Life. We're going to come back to this gospel to finish it eventually, but we're going to take a break for a hot minute here and switch it up. And friends, this is my last sermon uh, with you. Um, I am transitioning away from my role here at Christ Community and moving out east. And uh, I, it was tough to write this one. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to write it. <clears throat> but what you have this morning is just me. <laughs> so here you go. Uh, in certain moments, I'm just going to uh, break and, and, and tell the story and just see what it is, see what we have in our passage. But in certain moments, I'm going to break and just give some personal spiritual reflections about the person of Jesus that we see in the story. These aren't supposed to be anything real profound but really just reflections from my own life and experience. This morning we're going to look at one of Jesus' final acts in his public ministry. Interestingly enough, this is one of the last images we get of Jesus before his final week when he heads to Jerusalem and he heads to the cross. Do you know what this story is? This story is not Jesus celebrating the victory that will come. It's not Jesus partying it up a week before he heads to the cross. 
No, this last image that John gives us before Jesus goes to Jerusalem to die is Jesus going to a funeral. In the passage that was beautifully read for us by Hepzibah, we get a window into what it looks like for Jesus to attend a funeral. And as we move throughout our story, we're going to see Jesus behave in four different ways. We're going to see him behave in four different ways. He acts in these different ways that just kind of stand out. And John, who recorded this gospel, he recorded this story, was a disciple of Jesus, and he was an eyewitness to all of Jesus did. And he tells us this whole story. He doesn't just glance over it. He goes in. Let's get to the story. Here's what happens. We started our scripture reading in kind of the middle of the story. Let's start at the beginning. Look with me at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. If these names sound familiar to you, it's because Mary and Martha, whom Jesus mentions here, are in another story with Jesus. This story was in the previous chapter, actually. Mary is not the mother of Jesus. It's a different Mary. And in this chapter, she's learning and sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha is playing host. And John assumes the reader already knows this cast of characters because, apparently, this family was very close to Jesus. How do we know that? Well, that's in verse 3. John writes, So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, this may sound a little strange, but I think Jesus had close friends. Interestingly enough, he even had close friends who weren't only in the group of 12 disciples. Certainly, Jesus has a divine love. That means he loves everyone in a way that we really can't wrap our minds around. And we'll get to that eventually. But in his earthly life, Jesus also had friends. This person, this man, Lazarus, meant something special to him. Jesus must have spent time with him. He liked hanging out with him. He trusted him in a way he didn't just trust anybody. He loves Lazarus as a friend. That's what John records. And perhaps he even saw him as a brother. But something is terribly wrong with Lazarus. He's not well. He's ill. And so the sisters send word to Jesus. And Jesus is somewhere north of the Sea of Galilee. I didn't bring a map with me this morning, but he's up there because he's made some enemies down south. And so it's dangerous dangerous for him to be down south. So he's up north at this point. But the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, are so desperate for help, they ask him to come anyway. They know the power Jesus has. They've seen him heal. They've seen him do impossible things. So where else are they going to turn? They need a miracle. And they're asking for his help. Here is how Jesus responds to their cry for help. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? In case you didn't catch that, here's what John says in different words. Because Jesus loved this family so much, and this is the second time already John tells us Jesus loves his family. Because Jesus loved them so much, he waited two more days before doing anything at all. Well, that absolutely makes no sense (laughs) to us. Think about it this way. Imagine you had a loved one who was so sick they needed an organ transplant 
or they were going to die. You found one, and her body would accept it. It was just down the road, a few miles away. But every second counts, so you ask them to send it over, but the doctors just stop answering their phone. And you're left waiting, wondering, biting your nails, pacing, and you can't figure out why they won't answer your call. But even more, that doctor is a close friend. Can you imagine what his family is going through? Can you imagine what Lazarus is going through? His close friend, who has the power to heal him, won't come to him. Either it's not important enough, or it's something else he doesn't know. Take the sisters, their brother is on his deathbed. It's the anticipation of will he die, or will Jesus get there in time? What about the anger that bubbles up because Jesus doesn't come? They have to be thinking, maybe even doubting their relationship with him even. Maybe we weren't just that close, maybe we weren't just close enough to Jesus anyways. I think I would want to ask Jesus, what could you be doing that is more important than saving the life of your own friend? But instead of coming immediately, Jesus waited. Jesus waited. And you know, I'm not sure there's anything harder in the Christian life than waiting for Jesus to respond to us. Maybe that's just me, but I really struggle with that. How do we react when Jesus waits to answer us? Do we start to question him? Do we question our relationship with him? Do we question how important our relationship with him was in the first place? What do we do when Jesus waits to respond? A little while ago, this past fall actually, I stumbled upon a certain poem. And this poem captured my attention because it felt like to me that it grasped what, is, what it was like for me to wait on a response from Jesus. Right or wrong, I felt like I had been waiting in silence for a while and I was in this place of deep consternation. If you know me, you know I love reading poetry. I think poetry is the language of the soul. And this poem is by a German poet, Rainier Maria Rilke. And it was written in German and translated into English. It's imperfect in its translation. And it's in this small book of translated poems that I found that's early on in his, from early on in his life, and it's called Prayers of a Young Poet. If you hate poetry, I'm sorry. This will be over soon. <laughs> Bear with me. Here it is. Because someone once desired you, I know that we too may desire you. Even if we renounce all depths, when gold lies deep in the mountains and no one's there to dig for it, one day the river brings it to the surface, reaching in the stillness to the surface, reaching in the stillness into the stones, into their fullness. Even when we don't desire, God ripens. Waiting on a response from God is challenging for many reasons. But if you are like me, long periods of waiting in long periods of waiting, I can feel like I can become callous. There's a layer over my heart that develops. A heart that was once soft and tender becomes crusted over, and it takes a lot to get to that inner tenderness. This all happens because I start to ask questions like, where are you? Do you care? Yeah. You clearly don't, do you? And over time, I ask, what's the use in this anyways? And listen, I understand those questions don't feel like they're couched within a posture of faith. 
But if I'm honest, those are at times my very real questions of God. And just this past week, I was talking with one of my dearest friends here in Kansas City. And during our conversation, we were really just stumbled into talking about our experiences of being angry at God. We talked about how this kind of anger feels different from other types because anger directed at God can almost feel nebulous. It's not directed in a focused way. Instead, it's just something we carry with us that goes beyond just being mad at a particular person for cutting us off in traffic. No, this kind of anger can bleed over. It can become consuming in a way. And in the course of conversation, we reminisced back to a time where I was in a place of anger and disorientation. And I remember it clearly because I like jackets and I like the fall and I was wearing my favorite jean jacket. It was a Tuesday night last fall, around the time when I discovered the poem that I just read to you. Me and this close friend and I met at a Tuesday night at an empty bar in Westport. Not many people are out on a Tuesday night. And he sat across from me and I was tearing up and I said, I don't know but I feel like I'm a hurricane inside. I feel like I just don't care anymore, and equally, I have all of this anger in me, and it just feels overwhelming. And I don't know if you've ever had those times that just feel pressurized for no other reason than what you're experiencing on the inside, but that's what it was. Everything just felt intense. Here's what my friend did. He listened, and he responded. He gave me space to be angry. He gave me space to process without any quick responses or even to correct my theology. He wasn't scared by my rawness. He just gave me space to be who I was and what I was carrying in that moment. And then towards the end of our time together, he said, Ben, I know you know this, but you'll come out on the other side of this one. I know it seems like a lot, and it can be a lot right now. But just know that all of what you're feeling, it will get resolved. This will end. And it's true. God did meet me. And the crust of my calloused heart did get poked through to reveal the soft, tender spots that were still alive and well. Tender towards God and tender towards others. All of that was still there. But here's what I can say about that now. At the time, I didn't feel like I cared. I wasn't in this place of great desire for God. I felt alone. I felt like I had been waiting on God to say something, to speak a word of comfort, to move towards me. And then at some point in my rawness, I lost hope that that would happen. Here's what I'm getting at. In my time here in Kansas City and as a pastor, one of the things that I've learned, I've learned many things, but one of the things I've learned is that when we're waiting on God to respond and it feels like all hope is lost, we have to choose him anyway. There comes certain times when we have to choose him, even when it feels like we don't have compelling reasons from our our immediate experience to do so. Rabbi Joshua Heschel said it this way, faith sometimes is remembering those times that you had faith. Sometimes faith is just remembering and choosing. And here is where the poem comes in. In that process, even when we don't desire him, but we've chosen him, God ripens. Even when we don't desire, God is ripening us, getting us ready for another harvest of his goodness. Perhaps you are in a season of waiting on God to respond to you. 
Perhaps you are struggling with anger or bitterness, and you feel like your heart has just developed a layer of callous that makes it tough and tender towards, tough and not tender towards God and others. Perhaps you are overwhelmed or you can't make sense of your life or how you ended up where you are. Perhaps you're in a place where you feel like you don't desire God in the same way that you used to. Let me say two things to you. First, sometimes faith is remembering those times that you had faith and holding on to those precious moments where God met you. Sometimes faith is remembering and choosing. And second, even when we don't desire, God ripens. Even when we are waiting, we must continue to trust that God's work is abundantly greater and abundantly deeper than we can imagine. Because when gold lies deep in the mountains and no one's there to dig for it, one day the river brings it to the surface. God will bring himself to the surface of your life. Trust him in the meantime. So Jesus waited for two days and Mary and Martha were left wondering why. Why is he waiting? And here's the explanation from John that we get for why Jesus waited. It's in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The glory of God that is being referenced here is not so much to do with the glory that is owed or due to God, but rather something that God will reveal to us about himself. John is setting up what Jesus is about to do. He's setting it up. And we're to hold on to that thought as we keep reading the story. Look with me at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So finally, he's wanting to go to Judea where Lazarus is. But he knows, Jesus knows, that they aren't going to be arriving at the bedside of a sick man. That's not what's going to happen. They're going to be arriving at the tomb of a dead man. He bluntly says that to the disciples in verse 14. He says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. It's weird, but death here seems to be what Jesus was waiting for. They head to the home of Lazarus, and the grieving is still happening, and Lazarus has been buried for four days. When Jesus gets close, here's what happened. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, what Martha says here is definitely couched within the posture of faith. She trusts Jesus. That's clear. She has the right answers. But what sticks out to me is the first thing that she says to Jesus. If only you had been here. If only you had been here. And this is the same thing that Mary says to Jesus later. Jesus asks for Mary, and she comes out to him. And and this Mary, who hosted Jesus at her home, who hung on his every word, who sat at his feet and listened to him, now falls at his feet and says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
I imagine that's probably all she can say. And maybe you've said a different version of that to Jesus too. Jesus, if only you had been there. If only you had done something different. If only you had intervened. If you, Jesus, would have showed up, everything would be different. And maybe that's all you can say this morning. But Jesus says something that seems to come out of nowhere. It's clear he sees this situation very differently than they do. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus does not arrive at the funeral disappointed that he's too late. He does not claim to be a doctor or a surgeon. What's interesting is that he doesn't even claim to believe in the resurrection power of God. That's not his claim. His claim here is not that he believes in it. It's that he is the resurrection power of God. That's what he says. Look with me again. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he takes it one step further. He asks Martha, do you believe this? In many ways, that's the question Jesus asks all of us. Do you believe this? More on that later. Jesus is making a claim of unimaginable power here. He claims to be the life giver that no one and nothing can stop. But even with that knowledge, what does Jesus do? Even knowing that, what does Jesus do? Does he roll his eyes at Mary and Martha? Does he shake his finger at them? Does he lecture them or tell them to go do another Bible study? No. Here is what he does. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. When Jesus gets to his friend's funeral, guess what he does? He weeps. Jesus sees the pain, and his heart is overwhelmingly drawn to it. As I was reflecting on this sermon and just reflecting on my time pastoring here at the downtown campus, I just came to a realization. If there's one thing that stands out to me is something I can hang my hat on with Jesus, and there's many things, but if there's one thing that speaks to me from this passage and from my own experience, it's this. Jesus' heart is drawn to those in pain. Over the past years, I have seen this play out in my life, and I've seen it time and time again in the lives of others. Over two years ago, I went through the most intense pain I've ever experienced in my life. Many people have experienced more than me, but that was the most that I've been through. I got divorced. It was terrible for both of us involved, as divorce always is. I wept more in those months than I ever have before. A number of months after everything went down, there was a verse that kept speaking to me. It's found in the book of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are many things I could say about this verse. One is that God's throne is described as what? A throne of grace. I need to hear that. I always need to hear that. But when it comes to this verse, there's an author by the name of Dane Ortland who said it best in his book, Gentle and Lowly. This is what he has to say. He says, sympathize here is not cool and detached pity. It's a depth of felt solidarity. It is even deeper than that. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. And Orland continues, I know this is long. Consider your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive. In short, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel. There, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us. The heart of Jesus is one whose heart is inextricably linked to ours. He is with us always. And when you feel like you are in the pit, even if it's a pit of your own doing, guess what? Jesus doesn't stand at the top of it and look down at you and walk away. He doesn't tell you off. He doesn't even hesitate to see if he really wants to get in the pit. He just climbs down and he puts his arms around you. If there's one thing I know for sure about Jesus, it's that he's particularly drawn to those who are experiencing deep pain. And so if that's you this morning, my encouragement to you is that there is something precious about your tears before the Lord. Jesus is with you. He cannot and will not stop himself from from being drawn to you. We see in this story that Jesus weeps. His heart is overwhelmingly drawn to this family in pain. But it's not all that Jesus does. John says it again in verse, or John says in verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. This phrase, deeply moved, sticks out to me. And in Greek, it's actually one word. And you know what it means? It means this, to quake with anger. The image it's supposed to convey is like a war horse snorting before battle. (laughs) So here's Jesus. He's wept, and then he stands before the tomb of his friend, where the body has been buried for four days, and he begins to rage with anger. He rages. 
Now, I think all of us who have experienced the death of someone close to, of his, close to us has probably experienced a certain anger. Anger is one of the stages of grief. But there seems to be something different about this anger. There's an intensity to it because of the placement of it. It's right in front of the grave. And now this isn't something that many of us want to talk about. And by that, I mean the anger of Jesus. We don't really like to talk about that. For many of us, it's easier to picture an angry, detached God than it is a kind, ever-present God. But Jesus is angry here. But he's not angry because he's detached. He's angry because he is attached. And I think we have to carefully consider what Jesus is angry at. Where is his anger directed? It's at the tomb. Here's my point. There is something about death that stirs the anger of God like no other. God's anger is directed at this reality. The anger of God is directed towards the brokenness of the world. Which, most pe- which is most represented in the fact that people die. We also need to understand that Jesus' rage here does not lead to condemnation. Jesus' rage never leads to condemnation. It leads to rescue and restoration. God's rage always leads to restoration. Always. And that is true in our story here. At what seems to be at the height of his rage, here is what happens. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, I did not tell you, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. What is the result here? Well, it's simple. The result is that Jesus won. (laughs) Jesus defeated death. And and what Jesus is doing is foreshadowing the resurrection of himself and the defeat over death for all. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And again, that is the question for all of us. Do we believe this? The core question for those following Jesus is this fact. Do you believe this? Because at the end of the day, the resurrection power of God hangs in the balance of what Jesus says here and what he does later. Does he just die or is he resurrected after three days? And this isn't just the core question for those of us following Jesus. This is the core of our hope. Our hope is that death is defeated. That in the ultimate act of mercy, God himself died and resurrected himself in order to promise us all eternal life with himself. I said it this way last week. I read an article on Vanity Fair that Stephen Colbert said this. Do you know what believing in Jesus' death and resurrection ultimately means? Ultimately, believing in Jesus' work here means that you can kill me, and for me, that's not death. Yes, you will die, but if you believe in Jesus, 
That's not death. That is actually the beginning of life, fully joined to God himself. Now, it feels only fitting for me to finish with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he was a pastor and theologian in the 20th century. He came from a noble home. His brother split the atom with Albert Einstein. His dad was the top psychologist in Berlin. And Bonhoeffer grew up in a secular home. He wasn't particularly religious. But instead of becoming the music prodigy he was set out to become, he told his parents he wanted to go study theology. He got his first, first PhD when he was 21, and many of his writings were truly brilliant, but what is equally brilliant is his testimony. When World War II broke out, him and his family realized what was happening. They had some inside info, and that Hitler needed to be stopped, and so Bonhoeffer became a part of a plot to kill Hitler. And unfortunately, this was found out, and Bonhoeffer was arrested by the SS guards. He then spent quite a bit of time in prison, and soon before the war was over, Hitler sensed that he was losing, and out of spite, he had a number of his prisoners executed. Bonhoeffer was one of those prisoners. And so the story goes that Bonhoeffer was walked naked to the gallows, and before he died, he was recorded saying this, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Friends, believing in Jesus means to believe in him, that he defeated death, that he was raised from the dead, and that he does provide that resurrection life, both in what we can experience now, but also that we can experience fully when God brings us to himself through death. The Apostle Paul said it this way in his first letter to the Corinthian church. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Yeah. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you it's not just black words on white pages. We thank you for this story. It's recorded. Thank you, Jesus, for being near to us when we're in pain. And I pray for those who are experiencing that this morning, Lord. Would you be near to them, present with them? May they feel your presence with them. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to fill us with yourself and make your fruit ripe in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Father, may we be sensitive to your spirit throughout this week and how you're leading us and guiding us. And thank you that ultimately you will bring us to yourself. We'll have fullness of life in you. We love you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your spirit, we pray these things. Amen.